Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Gnome, a massive honor to have you joining us again so thank you so so much my pleasure let's dive straight in Keir Starmer Sir Keir Starmer leader of the Labour Party became leader on a program you could describe as Corbynism without Corbyn but now his leadership could be best described as Blairism without Blair so I'm just curious about your own reflections on Keir Starmer's leadership and what it represents politically. I think, uh, frankly, he's destroying the Labour Party. In fact, the most, uh, since you mentioned Corbyn, his most remarkable comment in recent days has been to virtually expel Corbyn from the Labour Party because Corbyn took positions which in fact are not very different from those of President George H.W. Bush in the early 90s. Uh, what Corbyn said was that after the Ukraine uh, problem is settled one way or another, we should begin to rethink whether military alliances are the proper way to deal with international affairs. Very dangerous comment. Uh, go back to the early 90s, the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, Gorbachev, of course, proposed a European common home, uh, no military alliances, accommodation. Uh, George Bush, this is the first Bush, uh, had a position which was not that different. He proposed what he called a partnership for peace. Uh, of course, Bush adhered to the firm, unambiguous promise that he had made to Gorbachev that uh, NATO would not extend beyond Germany. He adhered to that completely. Clinton later tore it, up, tore it up, but Bush adhered to it. The partnership for peace would have been a framework in which the countries of Eurasia could participate freely, whether or not they were within NATO. NATO would be, so for example, Tajikistan joined, uh, Russia could have joined. Uh, NATO was not dismantled, but it was put in the background. Well, that's uh, between the Gorbachev-Bush semi-agreement is pretty much what Corbyn was proposing. And it goes back to Gaullist suggestions and so on. But for this basically centrist proposal that uh, maybe we should go beyond military alliances and look for other 
kinds of accommodation and interaction. Corbyn was, Starmer basically threw Corbyn out of the Labour Party. Tells us a lot about the Labour Party under Starmer, one of many cases. Before I ask more about Ukraine, what do you think about the attempt to apply Blairism, a political phenomenon basically from a quarter of a century ago, that was its heyday, being applied to the world of 2022? What being applied? Blairism. So Blairism being a 1990s centrist philosophy, what do you think of it being applied to the conditions of here and now? Blairism in this connection meant servile obedience to the United States. And uh, that's British policy. US says something, we leap to attention. That's Blairism. No matter what the crime is, uh, doesn't matter. We have to shine the shoes of whoever's in Washington. That's Blairism. If you can find another doctrine there, I'd like to see it. Uh, the uh, uh, Right now, Britain, of course, is completely supporting the US, whatever it does. Uh, the uh, In the case of Ukraine, we have to think through it carefully. There is a possibly, there's one way to bring the agony to an end quickly. That's negotiations and diplomacy. There's no other way. Negotiations and diplomacy always mean offering both sides something they can live with. That's the nature of diplomacy. That means in this case, offering Putin some kind of escape hatch, some way to get out without admitting total defeat. That's diplomacy. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is to reject that. So far, we're just talking logic. Then we ask, what happens if you reject it? As the US and Britain do. Uh, well, if you reject it, you're carrying out a grotesque experiment, gambling with the lives of Ukrainians, and in fact, the world. You're carrying out an experiment to see whether Putin will slink away quietly in total defeat, or whether he will use the capacities that Russia, of course, has to devastate Ukraine and set the stage for going on to maybe broader, even terminal war. That's the experiment. Uh, and that's the experiment that the US and Britain are undertaking. Uh, the US position now is that uh, we have to, uh, that the war, the, that the goal of the war is to weaken Russia. So we have to go on with the war until it weakens Russia sufficiently. That's uh, actually a replay of uh, what happened with Afghanistan in the early 80s. We could go into that. But just think what it means for Ukraine. We continue uh, to try to weaken Russia, meaning we run the experiment 
to see whether Russia will simply tolerate total defeat and being weakened, I won't react. Of course, it can react easily, can attack supply lines, it can uh, devastate Ukraine, but uh, who cares? We'll, we'll just take a chance. Britain, of course, politely goes along. In fact, even goes beyond the minister of, uh, forgotten his name, and the Ministry of Defense a couple of days ago suggested that uh, Ukraine could bomb inside Russia. What does that mean? What happens if you bomb inside Russia? Does Russia say, thank you, that was nice, or do they react? And they have the capacity to react. They have the, easily have the capacity to destroy Ukraine. No one doubts that. Uh, they have the capacity to attack the supply lines leading into Ukraine, uh, which of course will lead to a NATO response and then we're off and running. Uh, all of this is possible, but the US-British position is, let's try. But on, on Ukraine, and this is a big debate taking place within the left, within anti-war movements, is those of us who have passionately opposed the horrors unleashed by US power, whether it be Vietnam, whether it be Iraq, or, for example, Israel's occupation of Palestine, many would argue those were wars of aggression in which people had the, fa- had the right to resist. So from our perspective, from a consistent left position, why not argue this is a war of aggression accompanied by some genocide or rhetoric pushed by official Russian sources to support Ukraine's right to resist in the way we would support the Palestinians' right to resist? Yes, no one should question that. That's not an issue. Palestinians have a right to resist. Ukrainians have a right to resist. That's not in question. What's in question is, do we want to follow policies which will take a very, have a very high probability of destroying them? So let's take Palestine. That's, uh, in the case of Ukraine, the concern is that Russia might try to occupy Ukraine. In the case of Palestine, they've been occupied for 60 years mm-hmm. uh, in violation of Security Council resolutions. They've annexed the Golan Heights, Greater Jerusalem area in violation of explicit Security Council resolutions, uh, the settlement in the West Bank, explicit violation of Security Council resolutions. It's not imagining whether they might, whether Israel, that means the United States, will back, will occupy Palestine. It's already done it. So yes, Palestinians have a right to resist, but do we therefore say uh, we should provide weapons to uh, Islamic Jihad? I don't say that. I think Palestinians are right to have agreed to move towards negotiations in which they do offer the aggressor uh, quite a lot. 80% of Palestine, for example. Well, that's sanity, okay? 
yes, we have the right to resist, but we understand that it's suicidal and we don't want to commit suicide. So we therefore move to diplomacy in which of course there's an escape hatch for the aggressor. Well, that's the consistent policy of the left and applying that policy in Ukraine, go back to the elementary logic. Either we move towards negotiations, which do accommodate the aggressor in some fashion, some way to save face or whatever, or else we run this grotesque experiment, which would be very much like saying, uh, let's pour weapons to uh, Islamic Jihad and see what happens. Yeah, you know what will happen? You'll wipe out the Palestinians. Okay, is that the left? Well, take Vietnam. Vietnam as an example, because an argument then could have been the US is the global hegemon. Vietnam doesn't have the capacity to defeat a massive military superpower. And if it tried, it would suffer huge devastation. And it did. Three million people, it's estimated, died across, which you documented so incredibly in the 60s and the 70s, Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. But they did win. I mean, in that sense, would we have said, don't fight back against the US empire? Nobody said said that. And nobody's... Nobody is saying it in the case of Ukraine either. Yes, fight back. But in the case of Vietnam, they were calling for negotiations all the way through. And in fact, if we go back to the early 50s, they not only accepted negotiations, the Viet Minh accepted giving up, uh, they accepted the Geneva Agreements, 1954, which separated the two regions with the promise of elections in 1956, which would unify them. That was a big concession. Of course, it didn't work because the US rejected it. But uh, yes, they accepted a concession. And right through the late 80s, the National Liberation Front, what we call the Viet Cong, was the main force in South Vietnam. They not only accepted concessions, they offered a huge concession, namely neutralization of South Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Tremendous concession to the United States, which of course the US rejected in favor of destroying the NLF, which it succeeded in doing, incidentally, to major US victory to have wiped out the Southern resistance. the country survived barely, but much of it, the, much of the resistance was destroyed. A couple of years later, North Vietnam was calling for negotiations, which would involve some kind of settlement. So yes, they wanted to survive. They weren't uh, uh, interested in heroic slogans about uh, the people united will never be defeated. That's uh, not their business. They wanted to survive. So they were calling for negotiations and accommodation all along, just as the Palestinians are doing. Finally, they didn't do it for a long time, which was a serious error. Now, late more recently, they have been doing it. And that's 
If you want to survive, that's what you do. Should the left support the will to survive? Yes. I don't think the left, any business of the left to uh, uh, produce heroic sl slogans about why don't you fight to the death. War, as you know, invariably ends up with some form of negotiated settlement. But then isn't it the issue that that settlement will often reflect the balance of military power at that given time? The, the slogan, no justice, no peace, often used on the left, it's often mistaken as a threat rather than a statement of the obvious. So if you end up with a settlement in which, for example, Ukraine feels subjugated, then that won't be a lasting peaceful settlement. So the argument then would be, if Ukraine was allowed to gain an upper hand, you would end up with a negotiated settlement more amenable to the terms of the Ukrainian people. That's undertaking the hideous experiment of seeing can we, let's take a chance let's gamble on the lives of ukrainian people and hope that putin will slink away quietly accept defeat and not use the force that he has to destroy ukraine mm -hmm. you want to carry out that experiment say so but recognize that you're a moral monster who cares nothing about Ukrainians. Now, this is a different question. Should arms be provided to Ukraine to defend themselves? Well, here, if you care about Ukrainians, what you will say, yes, they should, on the, but calibrated so that these arms do not escalate the war and the threat against not only Ukraine, but the entire world. So yes, it makes sense to send arms for defense, but with the qualification that you care about Ukrainians, namely you don't send arms in a way which will escalate the Russian attack and can lead, of course, easily to destruction of Ukraine. That's if you care about Ukrainians. If you don't care about them, you issue hero heroic slogans. The world well, what is if we the were to say, a... oh, sorry, say that, that that last bit there. Sorry, I missed you. Sorry, no, you, the, the connection went, but I think we've got you back. That's fine. We've got you. Um, what if we were to argue to the Ukrainian people that if we provide the huge arms pr demanded by Zelensky, by the president, that this will be an act of destruction for the Ukrainian people. But the position of the Ukrainian people in response to that is we want those arms. We want, I mean, because then in a sense is, is the danger that we're, we're arguing something against the expressed will of the Ukrainian people. We're saying that this will lead to your violent destruction, but their argument is we need this in order to end a war of aggression, which is a war of subjugation. How, how do we square that? Well, in the Western propaganda system, what we hear is Ukrainian people want more and more arms. 
That's the US and British propaganda system. If we look at what's happening, Zelensky, who's as much of a voice of the Ukrainian people as we can, we have any idea about, has repeatedly, repeatedly called for a political settlement in which Ukraine will, a pretty sensible settlement, in which Ukraine will abandon, will commit itself to neutralization, no NATO, uh, no uh, NATO uh, membership, crucial point, will put off the issue of Crimea to some future because can't deal with it now, uh, will move towards some kind of accommodation on Donbass. That's what you don't hear in the US-British propaganda system, okay? And that's a pretty sensible proposal. In fact, he made something similar just in March, which the US refused to back. In fact, the record all the way through is Ukraine seeking some kind of peaceful settlement, the US refusing to accept it, and in fact, moving the opposite direction to undermine it, and Britain, of course, Blairist Britain, politely shining Washington's shoes. Okay, that's the reality. I mean, if you want, we can go through it, but uh, let's just go back to 2019. 2019, Zelensky was elected, huge, uh, 70% of the vote, huge mandate. It was a mandate for peace. He immediately started to implement it. In fact, he tried to go to Donbass to uh, uh, see if they could implement the Minsk II agreements, which would have meant uh, some form of autonomy for the Donbass region within a Ukrainian federation. He was threatened by right-wing militias. In fact, they said they would kill him. They said it would kill him if he persisted with this effort. He got no backing from the United States, of course not from Britain, and he had to back off. If he'd gotten any backing from the US, it's a courageous man, could have persisted in the, even against the ultra-right militia threats, and maybe there never would have been an invasion. The US was following a different policy, a policy, explicit policy of integrating Ukraine within the NATO command structure. This is not concealed. It's announced publicly with pride, not only by the US, but also by NATO Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg. A couple of weeks ago, he proudly announced that since 2014, 2014, uh, NATO, meaning the US, has been sending advanced armaments to Ukraine, increasing military training of Ukrainians, joint military exercises. Uh, Last September, Joe Biden came out with a policy statement, which probably wasn't reported in England, wasn't reported in the US, much too important to be reported, a policy statement that said, uh, we are going to enhance, we're going to move forward with this program of, this is noticed before the invasion, we're going to move forward with the program of uh, training 
Ukrainians in advanced weapons, joint military operations, send more weapons, all as part of an enhanced program of uh, preparation for admission to NATO. The State Department officially stated that in the negotiate in the period up to the invasion, the U.S. refused to consider any Russian security concerns. Okay, of course, Blairite England going along politely. What this is saying is no negotiations. You want to you want to invade it's your business. Then we'll move to uh, we, uh, weakening Russia. What does this mean for Ukrainians? Okay, well, that happens to be the reality. And to go back to the logic, logic now, either there can be one possibility is a negotiated settlement, which is by definition true of diplomacy, will offer all sides something meaning some kind of escape hatch for Putin. The other possibility is to reject that as the US and Britain are doing and to carry out an experiment with the lives of Ukrainians to see if Russia will simply slink away quietly and say, we don't care, or whether they'll use the capacities they have to destroy Ukraine. You wanna carry out that experiment? be open and honest about it. I think it's a grotesque experiment. Now let's talk about specifically Ukrainian pleas. Zelensky did call for a no-fly zone. That was vetoed by the Pentagon, the one peacekeeping element in the US government. The Pentagon vetoed it for very clear and explicit reasons, which they explained. A no-fly zone sounds pretty until you look at it. Mm -hmm. To establish a no-fly zone, you have to have control of the skies, which means you have to wipe out Russian anti-aircraft defenses, which happen to be in Russia. So you call for a no-fly zone, you're calling for bombing Russia. Okay, then what happens? Well, maybe Putin says, gee, that was fun, please go on. Or maybe he escalates by attacking supply lines, which they haven't done yet. That means attacking NATO. Then what does NATO do? Does it say, oh, that was nice, please do more. Or does it escalate? Pretty soon we're in an international war, which will finish us all off. Mm -hmm. So the Pentagon says, we understand your interest in no-fly zones but you can't do that. That'll destroy you and everyone else. Yeah, I mean, the, the call for a, a no-fly zone, which was parroted by many liberals uh, who apparently had were, were pretty blasé about the prospects of nuclear well, Armageddon, it should be said. Um, for, fortunately, we have the Pentagon <laughs> to uh, call for an, to veto uh, efforts by liberals to destroy the world. Look, thank thank goodness for the comrades of the the anti-war movement in the in the Pentagon. Um, in in terms of though Putinism, I suppose if we can call Putinism a thing, do you think 
it would accept a negotiated peace settlement along the lines you've suggested, and which you're right, Zelensky himself has spoken about, given the rhetoric, I suppose. Putin has spoken of Ukraine being an artificial nation created by the Bolsheviks, all this nonsense about being neo-Soviet when he defines himself against the Soviet Union. Um, And a lot of rhetoric from Medvedev, the former president, once called a reformer, talking about the destruction of Ukraine, de-Ukrainization, we've heard that a lot. I mean, isn't that the danger that they've become so fanatical on that on that issue that would they accept a settlement along those lines? First of all, that's part of the rhetoric that you hear from Russia, the part that the US-UK propaganda systems love to emphasize. There's another part. In the same speeches, he says, anyone who thinks of restoring the Soviet Union is out of his mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. The main goal, the main goals of the Ukraine, what they call special operation invasion, in other words, the main goals are neutralization of Ukraine and demilitarization. Well, demilitarization is a vague term, can be interpreted as meaning status like Mexico. You don't put heavy weapons provided by the Chinese on the U.S. border. Okay, that's just taken for granted. Try to violate that, Mexico is vaporized. Okay, Uh, so that's understood. Doesn't mean that Mexico gives up its army or police or anything else. Just means you're not a hostile military, part of hostile military alliance. Uh, You can interpret demilitarization that way. Now, what would Putin accept? There's exactly one way to find out. Try. There's no other way. If you want, you can keep to the uh, rhetoric that they love in England and the United States and say, we can't try. That's a nice way of saying, let's kill all the Ukrainians. Maybe he won't accept it. Maybe he will. There's exactly one way to find out. That's to shift policy from undermining negotiations to tolerating and facilitating them. So let's say, okay, we shift our policy. We now are in favor of moving towards negotiations. We'll try to facilitate them. We'll see if diplomacy can lead to a way out of this. That's one possibility. The other possibility is to continue to reject diplomacy, to undermine it, to carry out policies which you know will lead to increased violence and aggression, like the official policy, as the State Department explained, to refuse to consider any Russian security concerns. That's saying, good, let's go on and destroy everything. So you can take that position. You can even make yourself feel heroic about it. It's monstrous. I mean, you sound pessimistic about the prospects of a negotiated settlement for the reasons you've explained. I mean, how, what, if you were to make a prediction, is this 
a war which you can see dragging out for for months, for years even, with until there is some sort of settlement. But after we've seen the widespread destruction of much of certainly the east of Ukraine. The U.S. position is increasingly uh, something like uh, an Afghan model. In fact, many are saying it. Let's, uh, our goal is to officially now to weaken Russia. If this drags on the war, okay, we'll keep dragging on the war. Hope that the Russians won't respond with uh, uh, the means that they have. Uh, meanwhile, Ukrainians will die, plenty of Ukrainians will die, but we'll keep it on on the Afghan model. Well, what was the Afghan model? It's worth looking at. That was the position of the United States in Afghanistan. Let's try to keep the Russians in. The Russians knew right away they made a mistake. They wanted to get out. Let's keep them in. Let's arm uh, not just Afghans, but let's mobilize the most radical, violent Islamic forces we can find, send them to Afghanistan, uh, uh, talk about the heroic freedom fighters, meanwhile, kill a million Afghans. Uh, but uh, as Brzezinski, the architect of the policy, stated towards the end, it was worth it because we weakened Russia. So a million Afghans, who are they? Uh, actually, if you look at the act, what actually happened in Afghanistan, there is an authoritative study of this by uh, Zilek Harrison and Cordovas, the UN ambassador, detailed study. What they point out is that, well, as they put it, US policy was to fight the Russians to the last Afghan. But what actually happened, they said, is that diplomacy settled it. Mm -hmm. Careful diplomacy by the United Nations. The United Nations carried out a, they run through it in detail. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you wanna tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A very carefully calculated diplomatic process with the Russians and the Americans in the background and succeeded in really reaching an agreement uh, through diplomacy. As they point out, the Russians were never defeated. At the end of the war, the Russian forces were quite stable. They were in place, could have gone on indefinitely. 
They even had a fairly popular president, Najibullah, in power. Uh, could have gone on, but diplomacy did settle it. Uh, they point out that uh, there were in the United States that there was a group that they called the Bleeders. Let's just keep the war going and bleed the Russians. In fact, official U.S. policy announced by the CIA station chief in, in Islamabad, the guy who was actually running it, was that the goal is to kill Russian soldiers, not to liberate Afghanistan. And they did. They killed a lot of Russian soldiers. Not enough to get the Russians to leave. They were in quite a stable military position. But in the background, diplomacy did settle it. Well, that's essentially the Afghan situation. Uh, the uh, difficult, the difference now is that neither in Russia nor in the United States are there uh, people like Cyrus Vance, Mikhail Gorbachev, who wanted to move towards diplomacy. Well, our question is, do we want to continue with that? We can't determine what happens in the Kremlin. You and I can do nothing about that. But we can do something about what happens in 10 Downing Street and the White House. Mm -hmm. Something, not everything. But that's, since that's what we can do, that should be our concern. With regard to what Russia will accept, one way to find out, try. If you continue to undermine the possibility, we won't know. We'll just drive them to more and more violence. You lived through the whole of the Cold War, and there was no nuclear war, though it did come close at least once, arguably two or three times. But how would you compare now the threat of a nuclear conflict with the Cold War period? Well, really doesn't matter what my subjective judgment is. There are people much better placed than I am uh, who really studied the cold, the nuclear system carefully. Many, they think it's worse now, more dangerous now. I concur. If we continue, I mean, uh, the in the uh, re unfortunately, in Britain, the United States, Russia, we don't now have the accommodationist forces that held back the worst tendencies. Uh, I mean, the, I, you know, it's, you do hear people in Congress and in Britain, in the parliament saying, let's move on to a no-fly zone, meaning let's have a terminal nuclear war. You know, you hear them, but you don't hear many other voices, except for the Pentagon, fortunately. Well, not a, not. That's a dangerous situation. If uh, uh, to say that we we came close during the Cold War many times, not just the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm -hmm. Take one famous incident. Uh, William Perry, Secretary of Defense, was three minutes away from telling Carter 
to launch missiles. There was a, he received a message from the launch officer, you know, the, the military command saying, there's a, a launch of missiles against the United States from Russia, got that message. He had three minutes to decide whether to tell Carter to retaliate. Uh, just before he was about to call, he got another call from the launch officer saying, sorry, it was an error. Uh, there was an old uh, tape in the machine and it was an experimental tape. We didn't c catch it in time. Three minutes away. Okay, it's not the only time. Oops. The, you look over the record, came very close over and over, uh, sometimes accidentally, occasionally reckless actions. Well, now we go on with this and miracles don't continue. Uh, the Russians incidentally don't have a very effective warning system, nothing like the US system. Uh, furthermore, the US has uh, radar stations all the way around Russia they don't have anything like that. So we know immediately if anything's going on in Russia, they don't. Uh, there was an open skies treaty, which Trump dismantled along with everything else. Uh, the, it's a hair trigger system, could go off anytime. And if we play games with it, we're toying not just with the fate of Ukrainians, but the fate of the world, because nobody survives a nuclear war. I mean, yeah, there'll be some stragglers around, but the lucky people will be those who die quickly. Absolutely. The, the living will envy the dead. Um, you very powerfully spoke about the, the menace posed by Donald Trump and the need to defeat him. Why do you think he's taken a stance of calling for a negotiated settlement on Ukraine, given, I suppose, the the menace, which you, you, you very, I mean, we spoke at the time, the, the particular threat he posed. I know that was particularly because of the climate emergency, but nonetheless, what do you think is driving that position? It's interesting that among... Uh political figures with any influence in the United States and Britain, I've been able to find only two who have taken the same position that we should be moving towards negotiations. In England, it was Jeremy Corbyn, result from out of the Labour Party. In uh, the United States, it's Donald Trump, I should say. Uh, the fact that I quoted this uh, elicited a tremendous wave of hysterical hate mail from the left. You're not allowed to tell the truth. If you want to be on the left, you have to lie. So if somebody you hate rightly says something sensible, you're not allowed to repeat it. Not allowed to repeat what this shows about everyone else. You want to get a sane statement? You have to go to the level of Donald Trump. What does that say about the rest of the political class? Well, it tells you something, but we're not allowed to say it. That's part of the left censorship. Okay, well, I'll repeat it, no matter what anybody thinks about it. You look through the 
political echelon, high political echelon in the United States, find somebody who's made a strong statement calling for negotiations, happens to be Donald Trump, whether you like it or not. What's in his mind? I haven't the slightest idea. He says that in one moment. Uh, two minutes later, he says, let's bomb Russia and wipe them all out. What's going on in his mind? Probably nothing. You know, the last sentence he heard, he repeats, but it doesn't make any difference. I'm not talking about Trump, the person, the creature. I'm not even sure he's a person, but Trump, the creature. I'm talking about the statement that he made. I had a question just finally on Ukraine. I wanted to ask just a couple of other things before before I let, let you go. Um, Jack Ede asked, um, could I ask specifically about Russia's demand for denazification? You frequently written, written about Putin's demand for demilitarization of Ukraine, e.g. Austrian-style neutrality is likely necessary for peace. But the mainstream media more often focus on the denazification demand, presumably because it makes Putin sound more unhinged. How important does he think the element is, or is it a bit of a red herring? Of course, the foreign, I mean, the foreign minister said some pretty diabolical things about Hitler and so on. But what, what's your take on what Jack asked? There's one way to find out, only one, try, okay? Uh, yes, you're right. The mainstream media in England and the United States focus on that and give it the harshest possible interpretation. That's part of the propaganda that says we can't move towards negotiations with this mad monster. We have to go on escalating the war and hope that he doesn't use his capacity to destroy Ukraine. So we have to continue with this monstrous experiment. The word immoral doesn't even capture it. Hideous experiment. We have to do this because maybe Putin is such a lunatic that he wants to uh, destroy Ukraine, okay? There's one way to find out. See if he will accept neutralization and demilitarization in the sense of Mexico, Austria, uh, Finland, and so on. Let's see. Actually, it's very interesting to see what's happening in Europe right now. It's not, not just England, which you expect, but uh, the continent. So just a couple of days ago, I had a long discussion in Sweden with uh, Swedish group that's concerned with joining NATO. Uh, and we discussed something which they told me is never discussed in Sweden. But it's, if that's true, it's pretty remarkable. There's a very remarkable thing happening in Sweden and Finland. They have two positions. One position is gloating over the fact that the Russians are a paper tiger. Their military is so totally incompetent that they can't conquer cities 20 kilometers from their border 
defended by mostly citizens militia. The army's just a pretense, a wreck, can't do anything. That's one view. Let's gloat and be happy about that. The other view is this monstrous military regime machine is just about to attack the world's uh, most enormous military system and overwhelm Europe. Those two views are held simultaneously. That's uh, that's an example of what uh, George Orwell called doublespeak, mm-hmm. namely the ab- ability to have two completely contrary ideas in mind and believe both of them. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what's going on. According to what they told me, this isn't even discussed. The mania is so extreme, you can't even discuss the fact that you're holding two completely contradictory ideas in mind. Which is the right one? Well, the right one is that the Russians have shown that the military is deeply incompetent. Uh, the chances of their attacking anyone else are fluctuate around zero. Uh, you want to increase tensions? Join NATO. Good way to increase tensions. Uh, other than that, there's no de- as you're not defending yourself against anyone. I just wanted to ask as well about Joe Biden and the political situation in the United States. And I suppose the Democratic establishment are laying the foundations for a narrative that if they get hammered in the midterm elections, it's the fault of the left. And I found it interesting that the polling showed the biggest fall in support for Joe Biden was amongst younger people, the same younger people who are more likely actually to be drawn to more radical ideas, to be more against the status quo. So I'm just interested in your take on the political predicament of the Biden administration and where the left, which has risen in US society, goes from here. Um. Uh, It's an interesting question, but let's first look at the word radical, which he used. Who's radical in the United States? Well, Bernie Sanders. Uh, That's about as radical as you get. Uh, You may have seen a column in the London Financial Times a couple months ago where uh, Associate Editor Rana Farahar sort of half joke, not only half a joke, said that if Biden was in, if Sanders was in Germany, he could be running on the Christian Democrat ticket. Uh, What is he calling for? His most radical positions are universal health care and free higher education. Can you think of a country that has universal health care and free higher education? Can you think of one that doesn't, you know? That's radical. In the United States, to be radical is to say, let's be like European conservatives, okay? Uh, Or Mexicans, you know, who have it, you know? That's radical. But uh, going back to your point, there's a very interesting phenomenon. Uh, The, uh, take the major, uh, the major uh, Biden proposal, the Build Back Better bill. Sanders basically initiated it. 
Well, it was a, it's a very important, it contains programs that would be very important for overcoming serious internal problems in the United States. Uh, the United States is socially very backward. It's about, it's the only country aside from a couple of Pacific islands that doesn't even offer maternal uh, care, maternal leave. I mean, a woman has a baby, gets not, doesn't have maternal leave, let alone paternal leave. Uh, doesn't, the, the child credit would bring the United States towards most of the civilized world. Uh, Health care is a scandal in the United States. Uh, there are all kinds of infrastructure, all kinds of things have to be done. Well, the Sanders bill was quite significant. It was cut down sharply, 100% Republican opposition, a couple of right-wing Democrats going along with them. So it was way cut down. Probably none of it will be passed. Now, there's a very interesting aspect to it, looking at polls. When people are asked about the individual elements in the bill, they favor it strongly. When they're asked about the bill, they oppose it. Why? Because the propaganda tells us it's just big government trying to steal things from you. Okay, that's what you read. Now, the Democrats had a very, could have had a very sensible strategy, but it would have meant going to war. They could have said, let's have a, line, a an item by item vote on the Build Back Better bill. Let's vote on child credits. Very popular. All right, let's smoke out the Republicans and the right-wing Democrats to say, I oppose it. Hmm. Okay, that's going to war. They were unwilling to do that. They kept trying to compromise. They kept hoping, that included Sanders, that somehow maybe a couple of Republicans will pull out and agree to something. Absolutely not. Republicans are dedicated to harming the country as much as possible so you can blame the Democrats and come back to power. No compromise. No compromise with Joe Manchin, the right-wing Democrats. And they lost on that. And uh, uh, what you say is correct. They've lost uh, support among young people who want the kinds of programs that would bring the United States into the civilized world, what are called radical. Uh, and Biden hasn't been able to come through with it. And it's not really his fault. He's blamed for it. But it's the fault of a rock-ribbed 100% Republican opposition to anything, anything. Anything that would do the country any good, we have to oppose. And the right-wing Democrats. Now, Biden and Sanders had a choice. They could have said, let's keep trying to compromise. Maybe we'll get somewhere. Or they could have said, let's just go to war and uh, do the kinds of things you can do, like a item by item vote. Well, they decided to compromise, didn't work. They're now in a very weak position and uh, probably will lose Congress. Losing Congress is not a joke. 
that means that the Republicans will be able to pursue their quite open, not concealed effort to destroy American democracy, to ensure that a Christian nationalist, white supremacist uh, party will be able to be in power indefinitely by gerrymandering, by cutting out, uh, keeping the wrong people from voting, all sorts of other means. What that, what that means, the United States is not Andorra. What happens in the United States affects the whole world. Britain, of course, because Britain just follows along, but even the rest of the world. If the United States falls into the hands of this basically proto-fascist party, uh, the world is in really deep trouble. That's what's happening in November. And, and just just on that, a Canadian political scientist, I forget his name, but he suggested it was entirely plausible by 2030 that however caveated we call American democracy now, that America could be under the control of a right-wing dictatorship by 2030. I just wondered, do you think that's possible? That American, the, the oligarchic form of capitalism that sure prevails that that could disappear altogether in favor of a right-wing authoritarian regime which consolidates minority rule indefinitely? It's not only possible, it's very likely. That's the direction in which things are going. The, uh, the courts, the right-wing court, has uh, gutted the Voting Rights Act. That means many states, southern states, midwestern states with Republican legislatures are now free to reinstitute something like Jim Crow legislation. That'll give them a lock on power. Other, the American system has, a, there are structural properties, there are real problems. The structural properties simply give a, a, a much, a preponderant share of power beyond their numbers to the rural vote. The liberal votes are concentrated mostly in cities. The rural votes are scattered through the, through the state. Uh, and it happens that the rural vote is now traditionalist, uh, Christian nationalist, uh, sometimes for perfectly objective reasons, the jobs have been lost. The neoliberal globalization programs have been designed in such a way as to undercut the American working class. Same in England, same elsewhere. That causes plenty of resentment, leaves an opening for the most reactionary forces. Labor movement has been crushed since Reagan and Thatcher. Reagan and Thatcher knew what they were doing. They were launching an assault against the population and you have to eliminate the means of defense. The means of defense are mainly unions. So both Reagan and Thatcher opened their terms by a major attack on unions. Can't have any defense against the assault that's coming. Uh, and we've been through 40 years of a major attack on the population. In the United States, it's been 
pretty carefully studied by mainstream uh, organizations like the Rand Corporation, quasi-military research institute does careful work. They tried to give an estimate of the what they call the transfer of wealth. I would call it robbery, but let's use their term. The transfer of wealth from the lower 90% of the population, working class, middle class, transfer of wealth from them to the top, to the very top, which actually means a fraction of 1%. Uh, in the 40 years, they estimated it roughly $50 trillion. That's pretty efficient highway robbery. And it's felt. It's felt in the rural areas where the jobs are gone, where farming has declined. Small farms can't survive. You get monopolized agribusiness. Uh, leads to, you go through a rural town, the buildings are, board, are uh, boarded up, uh, uh, the f small factory's gone. Uh, there's maybe a church, you know, maybe there's a bank. Uh, people are angry. Uh, they happen to be, have a lot of traditional views. Uh, should be a white country. We don't want it stolen away from us. Uh, the Great Replacement, it's all open for this stuff. And the Republicans have been brilliant at exploiting these feelings uh, and the disaster for which they are responsible primarily. Let's exploit the anger and uh, turn the country into something like Hungary, which in fact is the ideal now, open public ideal for the right wing in the United States. American Conservative Union is having its next meeting in Hungary. It's, uh, that's the ideal. So it won't be a fascist dictatorship, just something like Orban's illiberal democracy. And that means you have in power a political party which is dedicated to destruction of the environment, dedicated, fiercely, no opposition, okay? There is no climate crisis. We must maximize the use of fossil fuels and eliminate the regulations that mitigate their effects. 100% support. They're gonna be back in power in Congress in November. They'll probably work it out so that they will have the presidency two years later. What does that mean for the world? Okay. Meanwhile, the Democrats, just look at them. So take uh, the leading, uh, one of the leading Democratic thinkers, Adam Schiff. Uh, the House uh, runs the House Intelligence Committee. He says, on Ukraine, he says, we have to fight the Russians there or else we'll have to fight them here. If we don't fight them in Ukraine, they're going to be attacking us. That's the liberal opposition. You know? I mean, kind of like the Minister of Defense in England who said, let's, let's start bombing Russian uh, installations. I mean, the world is in the hands of lunatics. Just very finally, I like to end on an optimistic note, and I will try. In my darker moments, I've been to Hungary. I've interviewed dissidents. I worry about Hungary as, as 
is the future, I suppose, urbanization. But what gives me hope is younger generations have become very politicized in a way that I think is historically relatively unparalleled. In the early 1980s, Thatcher won the youth vote. In the mid-1980s, young people for a while were the most pro-Reagan of any generation. There was a poll in 1968 that showed young people were more likely to support the Vietnam War than their senior citizens. And I think today there's been a profound shift with not all young people, but American young people, British young people, Spanish young people. Does that give you some hope that there are there has been a shift amongst Generation Y and Z in a more progressive direction? It's a mixed story. The country, the whole world, Britain and the United States, have become far more civilized in the last 40 years, despite Reagan and Thatcher. So the kinds of things that were said openly taken for granted in the 1960s would be unspeakable today, literally. I mean, uh, you may recall, I don't know you're too young to recall, but in uh, 1965, the head of SDS, the, you know, the... Students for Democratic Society. uh, Paul Potter, great guy, wonderful guy. Uh gave a presidential address for the SDS in which he said, it's time to name the system. It's time to say what the system is, namely imperialism and capitalism. It's time to dare to use the words. He couldn't bring himself to say them. He gave the speech, he says, we have to dare to use the words, but he couldn't say them. It's too radical to say the word capitalism, okay? Uh, Let's take uh, the front page stories today about the leak of uh, Justice Alito's opinion on Roe versus Wade. The critical commentary is pointing out that he never mentioned women. He said, in fact, he said correctly, there's nothing about women in the Constitution. Uh, At the time of the 14th Amendment, nobody cared about women. Quite accurate. In fact, in the 1960s, no one cared about women. Women didn't, the Supreme Court did not acknowledge that women were persons until 1975. That's when the Supreme Court ruled that women were peers. They could appear They had a right to appear in federal trials. Prior to that, women were property. Uh uh The United States, when it was formed, took over British common law. Uh British common law, women were property. Uh They were the property of father handed over to the husband. Uh Uh, That lasted in American law till 1975. Uh The 1960s, federal housing was segregated by law, okay? In the 1960s, the United States had anti-miscegenation laws, which were so extreme that the Nazis wouldn't accept them. Well, 
the Republican majority in the Supreme Court probably wants to go back to all of that. But the countries itself, the population, has been become much more civilized. You don't accept that anymore. You now you can name the system and a lot more. So that's happened. And over time, that's optimistic. And it is the young who are in the forefront. Extinction Rebellion, Sunrise Movement, others are saying, uh, you, you may want the world to be destroyed, but we don't. Okay. Well, that's hopeful. A hopeful note. I think to end it, Noam, it's been such an honor as ever to have your your insights, your clarity as as clear as ever um, on such a range of of subjects. So thank you so so much again for for joining us and and sharing sharing all your thoughts. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting. And I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road. Uh, forward slash Owen Jones 84. Leave us some stars. That'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.